I hope that just a few moments ago in our service when we were taking some time to confess our sins to the Lord, I hope that the Holy Spirit brought some specific sins to your mind for you to confess. If that time's going to be fruitful, that's where the fruit will come is from confessing of specific sins, of of owning those things and asking the Lord to come and not just to forgive, but to cleanse and to uh, change us and transform us. Perhaps as you were confessing those specific sins, you found yourself wondering yet again, how did I get here? What in the world led me to do such a thing? again. What would bring me to the point of rebelling against my creator like that? And the more serious or heinous the sin that you're confessing, probably the greater the frustration and the confusion. Can you trace it back? Whatever that sin was that you were confessing, can you, can you trace it back to its beginning? Where, where did it start? Chances are it began with something really small, uh, a thought, uh, a a glance, um, a a desire, maybe just a a question that popped in your mind. But in time, it, it grew. It grew into something much larger, maybe even exponentially bigger, kind of like the tiny acorn that becomes the mighty oak. We're moving into Genesis 3 this morning. And after the first two chapters of God's good and indeed very good creation, something very small, a tiny seed, if you will, will lead to all of its undoing. And we want to look carefully at that this morning to understand how it happened then, to to understand how it happens now, how it keeps happening That, by God's grace and mercy, fewer and fewer of those seeds will sprout and take root in our lives. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave, to, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Thus the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, would you take these familiar verses and would you help us understand our own propensity to rebel against you? Would you help us to understand and to see how it often starts so small and can bring disproportionate disaster. Would you help us to understand some of the craftiness of our enemy? Would you help us most of all to understand the great cost that you went to to undo their sin and ours? And would you bring great glory to yourself in the process? We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. There's an outline in your worship guide. It may help you follow along. First thing we want to look at this morning are the seeds of temptation. These seeds of temptation that are sown by a shrewd serpent. Our translation before us this morning, the ESV, uses the word crafty which has a negative connotation right off the bat, doesn't it? It sounds bad. Crafty. Interestingly enough, though, this word, the majority of times that it gets translated in the Old Testament, is translated prudent. It's actually a virtue that the wise are supposed to cultivate. Proverbs 12.16 says, 12.16 says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs thirteen sixteen, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. It's the same word used here in Genesis 3 to describe the serpent. See, originally this was good. Originally the serpent was part of God's good creation. He has a good character trait prudence, being shrewd, but under the wrong influence, good things are perverted and misused. So it is under Satan's influence. And that's what this is. We know that this is Satan speaking through the serpent. It doesn't tell us explicitly in these verses, but we know from the larger context we'll be without a doubt later on in this chapter. And we know that something supernatural is going on here because snakes don't usually speak. But this one does. He speaks to sow seeds of temptation. And he is indeed very crafty, very shrewd in the process. See, he doesn't approach the man, does he? No, he approaches the woman. He doesn't approach the one who was created first, who exercised his authority, even of giving the serpent his name. He goes instead to the woman. And he begins with a simple question, a 
an innocuous question, really. Did God actually say, let me plant a seed in your heart and in your mind about what God has said? Did you hear it correctly? Could you be mistaken about what you heard? Did God actually say what? What what specific thing is the serpent calling into question? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, why would he ask that? See, this isn't the temptation itself. These are merely seeds This is paving the way for the temptation. This is getting her ready to be tempted. What's he trying to do? How is he trying to portray God? Stingy? Miserly? Just plain mean? What kind of a God is this? He wants her to begin to wonder. Serpent takes what God has said and twists it, distorts it. And I want you to pay close attention throughout all of this. Throughout nearly every step of this process, how God's Word is at the center of it all, how God's Word is used, how God's Word is abused, how God's Word is forgotten. Not believed, not trusted, not remembered exactly quite right. God's word will make or break the temptation and the potential for sin at every step of the way. So, if the seeds of temptation are the way the serpent approaches the woman and questions and distorts God's word, then the seeds of the actual sin are found in the woman's response. How she carelessly, unwittingly even, nurtures these seeds, gives them fertile soil, good conditions for sprouting. Back in chapter 1, after God created the man and the woman, verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As soon as the serpent asked his question, Eve should have responded with both strength and clarity. As God's image bearer, as his representative, she had been given dominion over this creature. And this creature is misrepresenting the creator. Her response to the serpent should have been an emphatic no. A strong rebuke. You couldn't be more wrong, she should have said. It's basically the exact opposite of what you said, you stupid snake. He said we could eat of every tree, with only one exception. 
He's not miserly or stingy. He's abundantly over-the-top generous with us. He's given us so much more than we deserve or have a claim or a right to. But instead, hers is the mildest of correctives. We can eat of the trees, she says. She leaves off the every. That's what God said. You may surely eat of every tree, with only one exception. She leaves off the every. Now that might seem trifling to you. That might seem like nitpicking. But leaving off the every minimizes the gracious generosity of God. And then she overcorrects what the snake has said. We're not supposed to eat of this one tree or touch it. God never said that. She's added to what he has prohibited. She's making more of the prohibition than God did. She's, she's minimizing his generosity and maximizing his strictness. Maybe she's already bought into what the snake is suggesting. That God's not generous, that his commands, well, they are a little unreasonable, aren't they? Don't they seem a little much? When you consider God, when you think about him, what do you tend to maximize? What seems to loom large in your mind when it comes to God? Is it his strictness? Is it what he said you can't do? What do you tend to minimize? What do you tend to make little of? What do you tend to not think a lot about? Is it how very good he's been to you? How, how much he's given to you that you don't deserve? What do you do? Eve's not doing a terribly good job of handling God's word. Of what God has said, of, of how he's spoken. She's not insisting on exactly what God has said. She's not getting it quite right. And it also seems there may be a little doubt in her mind. Maybe just a little bit, just in the very back of her mind. If what God has said is even true. The command about the tree, back in chapter 2, verse 16, said, In no uncertain terms, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. When Eve reiterates it back to the serpent, inaccurately, she doesn't say, shall surely die. She says, lest you die. Lest? Is this trifling? Is this nitpicking? I, I don't know. Other places, lest gets used in Scripture tends to have a degree of uncertainty about it. So, something is a possibility, but not a sure thing. Lest sounds like in case we might die. 
In Genesis 19, when Lot is being urged by the angels to get his family and get out of there, lest they be, lest they be swept up into the punishment of the city. Their being swept away was a possibility, but not a certainty. In fact, it did not happen. Eve's not so sure that death will actually happen if she eats from the tree. Despite the fact that God said it surely shall happen. See, here it is. Not insisting on what God's word says. Not knowing God's word. Not believing God's word. Such fertile soil for the seeds of temptation and of sin to sprout. And so the temptation certainly does sprout. The serpent hears how Eve handles God's word, probably senses her lack of belief in what God has said. He sees his opportunity, and like a snake, he strikes. See, Satan doesn't lead with calling God a liar. That's not what he starts with. He's much more subtle than that, much more gradual. But once Eve has exposed weakness, not accurately recounting what God's word says, betraying her doubt about its contents, Satan seizes opportunity to take a much more direct assault. You will not surely die. See, Even he knows what God actually said. He says, surely. He doesn't say lest. He knows. Eve said lest. Satan knows God said, surely. And he directly contradicts him. He's lying to you, Eve. You won't die. And it's worse than that. Not only will you not die, something really good will happen to you if you do eat. But that mean, stingy God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have this really good thing. What is it that the serpent says God is withholding? Verse 5, when you eat, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God You'll know good from evil. See, you can't see now, and God wants to keep it that way. He wants to keep you blind. But eating will give you sight. You may be created in the image of God, but if you eat, you'll be like him, not just bear his likeness. You're ignorant right now. There's a whole lot you don't know. God wants to keep you from knowing it, but if you eat, oh, the knowledge is yours. The lies in this temptation, if believed, are so foundation-shifting, so life-altering, It screws everything up. 
relationship with God, your purpose and your goals in life. If, if these lies are believed, then God becomes rival and enemy. The goal of life then becomes outwitting him. Trying to one-up him. Trying to take advantage of some flaw in his creation. Would you think about that? How, how weak and stupid would God have to be to create a world that could be so easily hacked by its creatures? Like some security flaw in, in the software that's on your computer. How foolish God would have to be if this were the case. That, that by eating a piece of fruit that he created, that doesn't make any sense, does it? But unfortunately, we don't often think with the greatest of clarity in the midst of temptation. We often believe the lies of what succumbing to the temptation will provide to us. Satan's come with this full-on assault. He's calling God a liar. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want good for you. And this full-on temptation leads to sinful desire on Eve's part. Now, we know that to be tempted is not sin. We know this because Scripture tells us in Hebrews 4 that our faithful Savior, Jesus, was tempted in every respect as we've been tempted, yet he was without sin. So to be tempted is not sinful, but what we do with that temptation could be. The initial thought, urge, question, glance. What do we do with those? Well, what did Eve do? She dwelled. She pondered. She considered. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, man, that looks delicious. Sure would like a bite of that. When she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, gosh, that is beautiful. Would you just look at it? She saw that it could make her so wise. Yeah, I could really use that. I could use some wisdom. I need to know some of these things that I've got questions. I need to know some answers. No doubt she had walked by that tree and seen that fruit numerous times. And it hadn't had any effect on her until now. And now it's as if she's persuading herself that it really is a good idea, isn't it? We don't ever do that, do we? Reason with ourselves, negotiate with ourselves, talking ourselves into doing something about how worth it it will be in the end. See, there's a definite pattern in giving in to temptation. One commentator listed the pattern as this. 
we begin by listening to a creature instead of the creator. And then we follow our own impressions instead of his instructions. And we make self-fulfillment our goal. James also wrote about this pattern. This progress from temptation all the way into sin, and he takes it one step further. James 1, beginning in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Enticed by his own desire. Eve was enticed by her own desire. The serpent didn't create that desire, but he did take advantage of it. See, somewhere deep down, she did want to be like God. She did want to have more insight and knowledge than God had seen fit to give her. And all the serpent has to do is suggest and seduce. He never tells her what to do. He never says, you need to eat this fruit. She can't say, we can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. It was of her own desire that she took and she ate. It started so small, such a tiny seed, such a tiny, powerful seed of not knowing and not believing what God has said. It led her to this place. Unbelief led to her ambition and her coveting. Her coveting led to her rebellion, which led to her sharing. It wasn't just the woman. Verse 6, she also gave some to her husband and he ate. He too gave in to this temptation. He too must have had similar desires for insight and knowledge for being like God. Now he's not mentioned in this temptation account up until now. But these are some pretty damning words in verse 6. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He was there all along? He heard this whole thing go down? He heard the serpent questioning and twisting and distorting and accusing God of lying, promising what he can't deliver, Why didn't he say something? Why was he silent? Perhaps he was just as easily convinced of God's lack of goodness and generosity. Maybe he too felt like God was being too strict. Perhaps he too doubted if they would really die. Maybe he just lacked the courage to speak up. Maybe he didn't want to disappoint his wife. 
but his silence was sinful. His silence was a shirking of authority and responsibility. He was created first. He gave the animals their names. He would even give Eve her name. He should have said, no. That's not what God said. The snake's got it all wrong. Don't believe him. He, too, should have exercised his dominion over the snake, should have rebuked him, should have punished him, put him to death on the spot. Calvin wrote a lot about this particular section. He was very disturbed by how absolutely mad, how absolutely upside down this whole thing is. Here's some of what he said, and I'm piecing together. These are all his words, but I'm being more brief than he was. Consider the baseness of human ingratitude. Adam and Eve knew that all animals were given by the hand of God into subjection to them, but they allowed themselves to be led away by one of their own slaves into rebellion against God. Not only did they neglect to punish it, but in violation of all lawful order, they subjected and devoted themselves to it as participators in the same apostasy. He goes on to call this extreme depravity. This silence, this failure of Adam has huge and long-lasting consequences. The Bible is very clear about God's good design and desire for male headship and authority in the family and in the church. Now, that's, it's not without controversy, but that's a part of God's good design revealed in Scripture. And admittedly, what we see here in Genesis 3 doesn't appear to make the strongest case for that being a good design, does it? God desires men to lead in the home and to lead in the church. But y'all, this first example, yikes. But this first example is vital to us having a right understanding of male headship and authority in the home and in the church. See, it's not that God wants men to lead because we're so naturally good at it. It's not because of the extreme capability of men, nor is it because of the incapability of women. No, not at all. God's got bigger purposes behind this design. All right, see, he knows that we're going to look at this example. He knows that men are going to look at this example of Adam's silence and failure, and we're going to be prone to repeat it. 
prone to lack confidence, prone to fail to take the initiative and to speak up. And likewise, he knows that women are going to look at this example and will be prone to often try to take matters into their own hands. To say, in essence, I can do a better job than that, which is very often true. But the bigger goal, I think, that God has behind this is to have men and women both desperately depending upon him. Oh, God, you want, you want me to lead? I, I could never do that. Ding, ding, ding. That's the point. He wants women to say, you want me to follow that nitwit? I can't do that. Ding, ding, ding. That's the point. We can't. None of us can do what God has called us to do on our own strength. We've got to be desperately dependent on him. Now, there is so much more that could be said here about the effects of Adam's sinful silence another time. What happens when they eat? Oh, be careful what you ask for. Their eyes are indeed opened. And no, they do not, in fact, immediately die, at least physically. So maybe the serpent was right. Was the serpent right? Or was the serpent just a master of the half-truth? Because what happens when their eyes are opened? That same commentator I quoted a while back said it is a, a grotesque anti-climax to their dreams of enlightenment. Our eyes will be open. We'll know so much. But what they see is indeed grotesque because, oh yes, they do have a knowledge of evil. Their own. Their own evil. Calvin said they immediately discerned their own baseness. They were condemned by their own judgment. See, no one has to come accuse them. God does not yet confront them. They just know. They just know in the pit of their being. As is always the case in giving in to temptation. In pursuing forbidden fruit, it never ever gives what it promises. Yes, they see, but what a sad seeing it is. Seeing that makes them feel shame, even about their own bodies. They now want to hide from each other. Marriage relationship has been deeply broken and affected. They want to hide from God. This one who they now perceive as their rival, as their enemy. This simple act of eating that fruit had huge consequences and it would take the moving of heaven and earth to undo them. This one who took the form of a serpent, 
convinced them that God was their enemy, and now to fix what they have done, God will have to take the form not of a serpent, but of a servant. He himself would have to taste poverty and death. That, that's not what your enemy does. That's not what your rival does. That's not what a stingy, miserly God does. But he would take on flesh and he would live righteously and die sacrificially in our place. The death that we earned and deserve. See, he would do all that. He had to do all of that so that taking and eating could become take and eat. They took and they ate. Jesus on the other side of his righteous life and sacrificial death now tells us take and eat. His broken body tells us also to drink of his shed blood. He had to do all that he did so that those words that initially brought damnation and condemnation could be our very words of salvation and of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that truth would ring out the next time that we do come to the table of how even those words, take and eat, had to be redeemed. They had to be transformed from our, from their improper use, from their perversion of seeing you as rival and enemy to know you as our great Savior, to know you as our great sacrificial lamb who was slain, though he had no sin of his own. Oh, Father, would you bit by bit take away the power of the temptations that we face? Would you make us such good students of your word? Would you make us mindful of what you've said? Would you help us to commit it to memory? Holy Spirit, would you give us recall of what you have said in the word when the enemy would seek to sow those seeds, would seek to cast those doubts? Would you cause the word to come bubbling up in our minds and in our hearts? Would you help us to remember in those moments that it never gives what it promises? God, you're not the liar. Temptation is the liar. Our enemy is the liar and the father of lies. Would you, by your grace and mercy, continue to change us and transform us through the power of the gospel that we might be conformed to the image of our Savior and that he might be glorified and exalted. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.